As we continue our series in the book of Acts, uh, Lessons from the First Church, a story of glory and of challenge, I invite you to open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, and this is the next to last message in the book of Acts. We conclude it next week where we'll do a little bit of overview of what we've been learning. You might wonder, why is it that we're not doing the whole book of Acts? Uh, you'll notice in the title, it's Lessons from the First Church. And so we've been looking specifically at the church in Jerusalem to see lessons for what we may embrace as a church in the 21st century as well. Uh, the attention shifts away from the first church in Jerusalem uh, as we make our way through Acts and the gospel goes to the ends of the earth through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, which we will probably take up some other time, just not uh, in this series. Uh, in this text, I want you to observe how verses 1 through 4 are going to describe the pain of persecution. Verses 5 through 19, we will see the power of prayer. And then in verses 20 through 24, the penalty of pride. So, would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. <clears throat> this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. <laughs> and when they opened, they saw him and were 
amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Please have a seat. Let's think for a moment about the pain of persecution. We are introduced to a Herod here, Herod the king. Uh, This is not Herod the great, the Herod that had put uh, all the babies to death in Bethlehem. It's not that Herod. This is not the Herod that Jesus stood before in trial. Not that Herod. This Herod is named Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the guy who had killed the babies in Bethlehem, and his grandmother was a lady by the name of Maryam, who was the beloved daughter of a Jewish high priest. Um, When Herod the Great, his grandfather, was dying, he was a paranoid man, and he had killed Maryam, his wife, he had killed several of his sons, and on his deathbed, he killed Agrippa's father, Aristobulus. In fact, Augustus Caesar said this of Herod the Great, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. (laughs) Okay, that was how paranoid he was. And so Agrippa, when, all, when his grandpa was dying and he was killing all the people around his family, in fact, Herod the Great was such a bad guy, he put a whole bunch of people into a stadium and he ordered that they be killed on the day of his death and he said this, so that there will be some people grieving on the day of my death. That was how bad his grandfather was, right? Now, that actually didn't happen. After he died, people said enough of that noise and they let all the people out of the stadium. But the point is, is that his grandfather was a very, very weird guy. And so his family whisked a three-year-old Agrippa out of Judea and got him to Rome where he was educated in the highest circles of Rome. This Agrippa was personal friends with Gaius Caligula, who became emperor in A.D. 37, and who in Luke 3.1 had, had given Herod some territory to rule. We'll look at it in just a second. Um, 
in 39 AD, just a couple years later, Agrippa received all of Herod Antipas's territory when Caligula was, after Caligula was assassinated. And Claudius, the emperor, who was also a friend of Agrippa, expanded Agrippa's territory to include all of Judea. So this Agrippa, this Herod of Acts chapter 12, was popular among the Jews, largely because his grandmother and his father had a connection to the high priesthood. Agrippa worked hard to increase this goodwill. Now that the Jewish rulers had taken aim at the church, it seemed that the popularity of the church in Jerusalem also took a nosedive. And so here in Acts chapter 12, Agrippa now makes a play to make the church a key target of Roman government persecution and so gain favor among the Jews. This is about four to seven years after Pentecost now. Let me show you some pictures. This is Herod Agrippa. And um, just so you know, face-on shots are never flattering. So here's a better shot of him that makes him look a little more handsome. Uh, this gives you a picture of the, the territory that he controlled. First, he controlled this area, which is the area of Galilee. And it was known as the king's country. That was kind of the nickname for it. And so when we get down to the end of the chapter where Tyre and Sidon depended on the king's country for food, that's where they are depending on the food that comes out of that region. This is Tyre and Sidon right here. And they're dependent on this area. But then later on, uh, Agrippa gets control of this territory by Caligula. And then later on, this territory becomes his and he's named a king by Emperor Claudius. So he's become the most important person in the region in terms of political power. The first victim of Agrippa's attack on the church is the disciple James. You see it in verse 2. The son of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle John. When it says he was killed with the sword, likely it was by beheading. Now, there are a lot of names that are common in the Bible, and James is one of them. There's at least four Jameses in the Bible. It's the word that in Hebrew is the name Jacob. So you'll get a lot of name, people named James. Uh, one of them is James, one of the apostles, the brother of John the apostle. There was another of the 12 disciples that was a James, there's another James, if you look at verse 17, where Peter says, tell these things to James. Obviously, he's not talking about the guy that had been beheaded just a few verses earlier. This James that's in verse 17 is the half-brother of Jesus. So there's a, several Jameses in the Bible that we have to reckon with. This James that's killed here in verse 2 is John's brother, two of, of the 12 disciples named James. Um, <clears throat> this James that's killed is the first to die of the apostles for his faith. And his brother, the apostle John, will by all accounts be the last apostle to die for his faith. Um, does that mean that John was more holy than James or James was more holy than John? I, I don't think so. I think the lesson we learn from that, James being one of the first to die and John being one of the last of the apostles, is that God orchestrates our lives 
and our deaths. This doesn't mean that we'll be foolish about how we walk in this world, but it does mean that we don't have to live with fear. In verse 3, Agrippa now sees that his execution of James is popular, and so he proceeds to arrest Peter also. Why did it please the Jews that he would execute James? Well, the popularity of Christianity was followed by a Jewish public relations campaign to smear the church. The expansion of Christianity down to Caesarea and to a, a Gentile centurion by the name of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 has caused no small degree of consternation. The plot centers now on the part of Jewish leadership. We've got to reduce the leadership of Christianity. This is a common tactic. The stages are this. The first stage is discredit Christianity by public relations, by making sure that there's lots of stories in the public life that make Christianity look bad. That's the first stage. The second stage is to go after lesser known individuals in the church. And that's what happened when they killed Stephen, right? And then thirdly, you, the third stage, you attack the key leaders of the church. And so uh, the apostles James and Peter here are under attack. It's, it's my view, as we think about the pain of persecution, that in our culture we are at stage one uh, the discrediting of Christianity by uh, a public relations campaign, making sure that stories are out there that put Christianity in the worst of all possible lights. And this, of course, is only made worse when believers actually behave in an immoral and ungodly way, which serves only to uh, uh, seal in the minds of many detractors of Christianity's failures. The arrest, according to verse 4, took place during the Passover, and Agrippa's plan is to put Peter on trial after the Passover and likely have him executed as well. <clears throat> the pain of persecution is real. If we are going to follow Jesus, we must acknowledge that this is part of the cost of discipleship. Now, it may happen that it comes just in being ill thought of. It may come in the form of uh, employment discrimination. It may come in the form of actual arrest and persecution. Uh, there's a variety of ways in which those things happen over the course of centuries in terms of attacks on Christianity. But we can read all about it and know well ahead of time, even before the enemies of Christianity know what their plan is, all we have to do is read church history and know what the plans will be, you know? There is such a thing as a pain of persecution. Now, let's get to the power of prayer, because here we see something interesting. Peter gets kept in prison through Passover, and the church is making earnest prayer for him to God. Agrippa took extraordinary measures, according to verse 6. He took extraordinary measures to make sure that Peter stayed in prison. Let's think about that for a second, because it's kind of funny. Um, maybe Agrippa was worried that what had happened in Acts chapter 5, verses 22 through 26, he's worried that that would happen again. 
Do you remember the apostles got arrested by the Jewish leadership? And then they said, uh, the Sanhedrin meets, bring these guys out and we're going to try them. And they went to go get them and they were all gone. And then somebody comes in and reports, well, they're on the Temple Mount preaching. And so, you know, that they were trying to figure out what happened there. And maybe uh, Agrippa is worried that that kind of thing would be repeated. And so, here's what he does. He gets four relays of soldiers, four soldiers in each relay. Two of the soldiers are chained directly to Peter, and two of them are outside guarding the gate that no one can go in or out. This contrast is pretty striking, isn't it? Herod Agrippa, ruler, king of Palestine, king of Judea, friend of the emperor, went to school with him, uh, of the greatest power on earth. He has all the power, and what does the church have? They have prayer. That's what the church has. Prayer. Agrippa has all the practical power. The church has nothing but prayer. But nothing but prayer is not all there is, is it? There is a God in heaven. God is in charge, not just of the church, but of the entire world. And God sends his angel now to Peter. Note the detail in verses 7 through 9, which Luke must have heard from Peter's account later. This all happens on the night before Peter is to be tried. The night before the trial, which he would get executed at, right? I mean, you know that. Here is God at the last minute. And notice what happens here in verse 7. Peter is sleeping. He's sleeping so soundly that the angel has to strike him in order to wake him up. That tells you about the fearless nature of the apostles and the peace with which they experienced in their lives the challenges that life brought them. That's a fearless faith. The angel stands next to Peter. A light shines in the cell. The angel hits Peter on the side, wakes him, tells him to get up quickly. The chains fall off his hands from the two soldiers next to him. The angel tells Peter to get dressed, put on his sandals, and then he tells him to put on his cloak and to follow him. Now, it's remarkable, isn't it, that in, in, through all of that, we don't know what happens to these four soldiers. Are they likewise sleeping? Are they put into a, some kind of state where they don't see what's going on? Who knows? The fact is the angel walks in, slaps Peter on the side, says, let's go. And they get up and they walk out. Peter actually thinks this isn't real. He thinks it's a vision he's having. He goes out and follows the angel, but he thinks it's a, a vision, a, a dream-like thing or something, right? Verses 10 and 11 give the actual rescue, which is one of three rescues in Acts. There's one in chapter 5, and there's one in chapter 16. Just seems like it's just commonplace in Acts for God to rescue his people out of prison. Uh, 
by the way, that means that prison could be a place for the Christian and that deliverance from prison is entirely in God's, not human, hands. And so they pass the first and second guard. They come to the iron gate leading into the city. It opens for them of its own accord. They go out, go along one street, and then the angel leaves. Peter, standing there in the street, goes, wait a minute, this isn't a dream. This is like real. I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel, rescued me from the hand of Herod, and all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting? Peter's death, right? That's what they were expecting. This map shows you a little bit of what I would uh, speculate as to what happened. So I think that Peter uh, was imprisoned here at the Antonia Fortress, and he's led out of the fortress, and he's going along these city streets. I happen to think that the church is meeting somewhere down here on this western hill, and he's making his way through the streets in the dark of night. Now, I had the privilege when I lived in Israel of walking through the streets of the old city in the dark of night, and it is an eerie experience. There's nobody out, nobody around, absolutely still and silent, a place that is just packed wall to wall with people most days during the day is empty. Peter's walking through these streets, and he's on his way to this church meeting. Amazing. And he realizes, hey, this is real. Now let's think about the unbelievable answer to prayer. Verse 12, there's a group that's meeting. It appears to be a small group or a Bible fellowship size group meeting in a wealthy home, the home of uh, Mary, who's the mother of John Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark. They're, but they're without some important leaders. We know that some key leaders of the church aren't there, and so the whole church is not meeting here. Um, if you look at verse 17, where Peter says, tell these things to James and to the brothers, that means that they weren't there at the meeting, right? So this is some kind of Bible, I would say that since it's in a wealthy home, it's a larger small group, right, of somewhere around 70 to 90, maybe 100 people, and they're in an all-night prayer meeting. They had probably figured out, hey, Peter's in trouble, he's going to die tomorrow, the church must get together to pray, and a small segment of the church is gathered in this home to pray earnestly all night for Peter. While they're praying earnestly for Peter's rescue, Peter is at the door. There's a servant girl named Rhoda who answers. And in the first century, when you were standing at a gate, you would typically knock, and when you heard footsteps, you would start speaking in order to announce who you were. And so Peter is speaking, Rhoda doesn't see her through the gate, see him through the gate, and she, he's talking, he's saying, it's me, it's Peter, I'm here, and Rhoda recognizes his voice, she knows that it's Peter, and she's so excited, verse 14, she doesn't even open the gate. <laughs> in her excitement, she runs back into the prayer meeting. And they're all praying, oh Lord, deliver Peter. We're praying in faith, believing that you will deliver him. And she goes, uh, excuse me, Peter's outside at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your ever-living mind. You're crazy. That's not true. You're out of your mind. 
She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying it, was, it is his angel. So understand, there's a give and take here of debate. Don't just read this so fast. You know, read it slow. They're debating. Meanwhile, Peter is standing outside the gate while they're debating. The servant girl wrote his sanity and the theological implications of someone being out there. So here's what they get to. They think it's his angel. There was an idea within Judaism that a person has an angel that is his counterpart. If you seek support for the idea that everyone has a guardian angel... This and Matthew 18.10 are as close as you will find in the Bible. But don't get wrapped up in a debate about the existence or non-existence of guardian angels. That's not the point of this text. The point of this text is they're debating about whether or not it's Peter while Peter waits at the door. <laughs> You know, joy, as well as every other intense emotion, leads people to do illogical things. Rhoda, you think, why didn't she answer the door? It's for joy, right? She goes back, she talks to him, and of course, there's this debate that ensues. Meanwhile, Peter's knocking at the gate. Verse 16, Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Peter asks for quiet. He explains what happens has happened and he tells them to let some key leaders in the church know what had happened and then he leaves. He departed and went to another place. We don't know where he goes until he turns up again in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. The James that's being told about here in verse 17 is the half-brother of Jesus, who ends up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, there's some fallout to this escape, right? The day comes, morning, time to do the trial and the execution. Day comes, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. These 16 guys that had responsibility, four at a time, they had some real worries on their hands, didn't they? And they're trying to figure out what's going on. Notice then that the soldiers are disturbed. No little disturbance among the soldiers. This is now the second time that followers of Jesus have escaped from their prison. And this time it's just before a prisoner's scheduled trial and execution. It is a capital crime to let such a criminal slip out from your midst if you're a soldier. Agrippa is also concerned. You see it in verse 19? He searched for Peter, conducts a wide search. He finds nothing. He has the entire cohort of 16 soldiers killed. And then he travels from Jerusalem down to Caesarea. Here's what's funny about this in terms of the power of prayer, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 5 earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. Verse 12, many were gathered together and were praying. And then Peter shows up and what's their statement in verse 15? You're out of your mind. 
that's so much like you and me, isn't it? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. John Newton wrote this. In addition to Amazing Grace, he wrote this about prayer. Thou art coming to a king. Large requests before him bring. For his love and power are such that none can ever ask too much. I fear that sometimes our praying is too little. I fear sometimes that our praying is without expectation, much like this first church. They're not expecting this remarkable answer. And when they do get the remarkable answer, they actually, rather than go into the door, they go into theological debate. (laughs) And I think that sometimes that's just an easy thing, an easy place for us to go. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, right? The power of prayer. Now let's uh, finish things off with the penalty of pride. Um, Tyre and Sidon, as I mentioned earlier, depended on their food from Galilee called the king's country, which Agrippa had controlled for a long time. Um, By the way, that territory of Tyre and Sidon had been dependent on that same area back in the Old Testament. Check out 1 Kings chapter 5 verse 9 or so, you'll see that. Uh, The people of Tyre and Sidon knew that they needed to stay on Agrippa's good side, and they had cultivated a relationship with Agrippa's chamberlain. Now, this word chamberlain is something that we don't know much about, but the best thing that I could say is that this chamberlain named Blastus is sort of like a chief of staff. In other words, he's the guy that sets the appointments for Agrippa. He sets the agenda of what kinds of issues are going to come before him, who gets to see Agrippa. And so, the people of Tyre and Sidon make friends with this chief of staff in order to be able to have an audience with Agrippa and Blastus, this chamberlain, makes all the arrangements. And it turns out that uh, verse 21, there's an appointed day. Herod puts on his royal robes. He delivers an oration to him and they're all wanting to bless him and all that. And I actually believe because of the way Josephus writes that he moved his throne into the theater and he gives this oration from the theater. Let me give you a couple of pictures here that kind of give you a sense of this. So, again, this is where, um, this is, this is uh, Agrippa's territory, and he's in charge of it all. This is Tyre and Sidon. This is where they get their food, and right over here uh, at Caesarea is where they're meeting up on this, in this meeting. Now, here's the theater. Pretty impressive place. It's been reconstructed. There's concerts and stuff that happen there all the time in Israel today. Um, and So, and it's looking, you're facing, as you're sitting in the theater, you're facing uh, to the west, okay? So, you're looking out over the Mediterranean Sea. And what happened is, Herod's uh, on the the stage, front and center, on his throne, and he's wearing the silver garment as the sun comes up over the theater, and it shines down on him as he's giving this oration, and the brilliance of the sun shining off of his silver, looking out over this beautiful blue sea, and people exclaim, it's the voice of a God, not of a man. The scripture records 
Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Here's how Josephus describes the scene. Oh, by the way, this is Agrippa's palace right here. So it's not very far off, right? Uh, Overlooking this beautiful harbor uh, that his grandfather had built. Um, Let me back up here just a sec. Um, let Let me read what Josephus says about this. Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea. There he exhibited shows in honor of the emperor. On the second day of the festival, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a truly wonderful contexture and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it. It shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread an awe over those that looked intently upon him. At that moment, his flattery cried out that he was a god, and they added, be merciful to us, for although we have up until now reverenced you only as a man, yet we shall henceforth own you as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did not rebuke them, nor reject their impious flattery, but as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill news as it had once been the messenger of good news to him. And he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly, and he began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. Providence reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. After he said this, his pain became violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, just a few steps away. The rumor went abroad that he would die in a little while. The multitude sat in sackcloth with their wives and children after the law of their country, and sought God for the king's recovery. All places were full of mourning and lamentation. The king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw them below, lying on the ground, praying for him, he could not keep from weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. Very similar kind of account, isn't it, to what Luke records in Acts. This angel of the Lord that strikes him is perhaps the same angel of the Lord that broke Peter out of prison, right? Uh, Luke does not uh, identify this angel of the Lord as the Lord Jesus like the Old Testament does, but rather it is a messenger from God, and he's stricken with worms. The precise nature of this is unknown, but it couldn't have been pretty, The work of parasites, perhaps creating a bowel obstruction. Quick death, but not too quick and very painful. According to Josephus, Agrippa knew that he was a dead man. And perhaps he's remembering being told how he was sent away as a three-year-old to Rome for his own safety when a very similar thing had happened to his grandfather. Psalm 115.1 Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. 
unlike the man most saw as the most powerful man in their lives, look at verse 24. Verse 23, the most powerful man in their lives died, but unlike that, the Word of God, it says, increased and multiplied. What a blessing, what a blessed hope we have that despite all of the political powers that be, God is on His throne and He will bring about the increase and multiplication of His words. Four quick applications here. There is pain in persecution, and we have that as the common lot of the believer. Second, there is more power in prayer than we can imagine. Let us go in prayer to God. Third, there is a great penalty in pride. God's kingdom, not our own, is what matters. And God is deadly in earnest that He gets glory that belongs to Him, and anyone who seeks to seize it does so at His peril. Last application, the Word of God is in the hand of the Lord to increase and multiply, and we can take great hope and faith in that. Let's pray. Lord, today we pause to give You thanks for Your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. We recognize that to follow Jesus means that we will suffer. We pray that you would give us a readiness to take whatever happens in our lives from your hand, that we would seek you more than we would seek our comfort, that we would seek your glory more than we would seek our own, that we would ask, seek, and knock in prayer more than we would seek about for human solutions. It's good for us to be wise, but we pray that you would give us a, a, a heart to pray, Lord. Teach your church to pray, we ask. Lord, we ask that we would see the great penalty that there is in pride and that we wouldn't try to build our own kingdoms but seek for the building of yours that the Word of God may increase and be multiplied here in central Illinois, here in our lives, here in our church, just as it did in the first church. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.